So we're going to continue. We've been doing, looking at, as we go through Christmas here. There we go. One more. Awesome. Um, we've been looking at the Gospel of Luke. And what we're doing in the Gospel of Luke is looking at the first two chapters of the book of Luke as we come into the Christmas season. And the reason we wanted to do this, we wanted to kind of slow down and, and really think about what is coming as we enter into Christmas. And I don't know if, you, if you're like me, but we've already started having parties and things. We've, gone to, we've had a couple of Christmas parties already. Hopefully you have, have as well. We've been able to, um, to kind of celebrate with people and all that. But I wonder, like, when we're, I, I'm wondering, what do we say this time of year? Like, what is it that we proclaim? Or what are the words that we use when we're together? I mean, it seems to me it's very quickly like, we'll usually greet people, hey, Merry Christmas, and then go to immediately like, how are you? And, that, and that's awesome. Nothing, you know, praise God for the family. And that, as a matter of fact, one of the things you might notice in the first two chapters of Luke we've been looking at is, part of what God is doing in Christmas is knitting families together. And you might think, well, okay, he's knitting families together, like you mean Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, or you mean Zechariah and Elizabeth and John. Those are the two families we've heard about. But if you've not noticed the text, what the text is doing is it's actually taking these two stories. I told you last week, we always think about Christmas being about one pregnancy. It's actually about two pregnancies, John's and then Jesus's, right? And you even heard today in our baptism confession that John's there at, at this point, and he kind of... The, the scripture weaves these two families together. Now, they're cousins. They're already family extended, but the, he begins to tighten up the family. He begins to pull it together. And so the question I have as we get into the holiday season, we get together for family gatherings and friend, coworkers, or whatever, is what are the things we proclaim as being good at Christmas? What are the things that we say to each other that really matter? Or what you, words would you choose to use to describe Christmas? What opportunities exist when we gather I think it's unique this time of the year. It's right there in front of us. We're going to talk today um, from the Gospel of Luke about what that might look like. So um, I'm going to ask you to do what we always do. We're entering the scripture. We're going to pray that God would give us revelation from it, right? It's his word. He has to teach us that. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we've had to worship you through song and through baptism. And we continue now through the word. I pray, Lord, that today that your wisdom will be taught by you. I, I fully admit I have no wisdom of my own, Father, and yet, uh, so we need you to teach us. Would you cause your Holy Spirit to be our instructor? Would you cause us to treasure up your word in our own hearts and then go apply it to our own lives? Would you change us today, Father, because we've met you, because we've encountered you? And Father, anything that's going to be of man or of, of worldly wisdom, I just pray against that. And I pray instead that we would be listening to you, Indeed, we come in today, maybe we brought things with us. We've got hang-ups, we've got problems, we've got this, we've got that. I pray that just for this time, we would set that aside and maybe have, just say, yeah, I'm open today to hear from you, Father. What would you have me to know? So teach us, lead us, instruct us, bless us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and do all these things, Father, for your glory, that you be famous for your name's sake and for the good of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to continue where we left off at the very verse last week in uh, Luke 1, 57, and we're going to be rolling through 80. So Luke 1, 57 through 80. I think it's on page 715 of the books on the end of the chair rows. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the orange Bibles, and you can read along with us. We'd encourage you to do that. And as I always say, don't take my word for these things. Look for yourself and see what the word says, right? That's not true just of me, but of anybody. Um, please uh, look at the word and see what it says. This is what the word says then. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbor and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared in her joy. And so we have this experience now. You'll recall that what we've come through is this, this kind of telling of Zechariah in the temple, 
that he's going to have a son, and that even though his wife is great, is, is great in age, right, and even though he's great in age, and even though they've been infertile their whole life, he's going to have a, a son. But you'll, you'll recall, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, he's also, he, he asked, how can, how can I know this to be true? And because of that, he's been made mute. He can't speak from that moment until the baby is born. And so, um, so we have then this, this telling of the story where Mary has then been told she's going to have a baby and to go see your, your cousin Elizabeth. And she goes, as we talked about last week, to see Elizabeth. And there's these great professions made about who Christ is going to be. And so then now with the heels of that, we're coming up to this time when Elizabeth was to have her baby, that she gave birth to a son. I, I kind of thought of it like this. Uh, he's a boy. As a matter of fact, sometimes we have a tendency to say, it's a boy, but it's not a it. He's a boy, right? We just didn't know that yet. And a pretty remarkable thing about this is that the time was fulfilled. The word actually says here, when the time came for Elizabeth to have her baby, the word actually reads more robustly like this. When Elizabeth's time had met its fulfillment, right? I want you to hear that this morning because what that means is that for all those years that Elizabeth felt like um, it wasn't for her, maternity wasn't for her, a child wasn't for her, all her life she believed that to be true until her, her time was fulfilled. That's what the scripture says. And I know we can read that and say, well, no, they mean the nine-month pregnancy is fulfilled. Yes, but Elizabeth's time was fulfilled in this moment. And when this time had come, the culmination, the word says what? She gave birth to a son. This was God's perfect timing for Elizabeth. Now, I want to remind you of something. The fact that this boy was no surprise to Zechariah. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 13, he was told in 13, you will have a son. It reads like this. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and gripped with fear, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, right? So here's Zechariah, who's known he's going to have a boy, but can't tell his wife it's going to be a boy. Doesn't, she's not even pregnant yet. And then you fast forward, and here she's gotten pregnant. She's having a child. And then all of a sudden, she realizes he's a boy. So for Zechariah, he knows it. But for Elizabeth, this is news. And I would say, not just news, but good news. Because you see, there was something, in the, and there still exists today in our society, this idea that a continuation of a bloodline is a great gift from God. A continuation of a namesake is a great gift from God. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth had spent their whole life in a childless home. And they were faithful, God-honoring people. They'd done nothing wrong. And yet here, at the very, you know, near the end of their life, as Claude would say, you know, God blessed them with a child, and not just a child, but a son. By the way, can we just say this real quick? It's not that that's better than a girl. That's not what the word is saying here. I, I'm amazed at people sometimes that would differentiate. Oh, I, I want boys, not girls. I want this, not that. I'm like, oh, baby. Bring baby, <laughs> you know? Let God make life, you know? I even had a conversation recently with somebody who said, yeah, as long as, he, as long as they're healthy, that's the main. I'm like, maybe. Can I just ask you a question? We, we were just talking to a friend of ours who has a young, who, whose family member is a young person who's, who's got a serious diagnosis, having real problems. Do you know what grace that brings into the world? Do you know what compassion we see from one another when we can witness a young person? I, we wouldn't want suffering. But you know what a blessing it is? Well, Elizabeth not only got the blessing of a child, not only a healthy child, but a healthy child and a boy, right? And so she's, she's probably pretty excited. I can't imagine, I wonder, can you, how excited Elizabeth must have been 
to have, I mean, you would almost think it would be a compulsion for her to want to be able to give her husband a son. Here's, Zechar, here's, here's, here's John being born. By the way, it's kind of a funny thing, um, it's this whole trend about gender reveal parties and how they've gotten all out of hand, you know, like Tannerite and uh, things burning down and exploding and, you know, it's gotten crazy out there. But what is it about knowing if it's a boy or a girl that's so exciting? I remember that um, uh, in our own lives, that's usually the second question. You're going to have a grandchild. Yeah. What is it? Do you know? It's like we're eager to know. What is it about our culture that automatically celebrates the life, that automatically celebrates the gender, that automatically celebrates this gift to this family, that wants to come together and pour out all the blessings we've been given so freely with one another? So we have this then. She's hurried there. By the way, let's say something about timeline here. Um, I said last time, well, she stayed for three more months. She hurried there in the sixth month. Why? It seems that she left before John was born, right? But there's this um, interesting idea that I, I caught on to, and it comes in verse uh, 24. I want to take one second to hit it. So flip back to 24 and read the word with me. It says this. After his wife Elizabeth had become pregnant, and for five months... Uh, she remained in seclusion. And, and somehow when I read that the first time I missed it, she was in seclusion. Because I kept thinking, well, what's going on with the timeline that, that Mary would wait and, they, uh, you know, that Elizabeth would be in seclusion in the hill country or whatever, and that Mary would go in the sixth month and all that. And I started thinking, well, what was it about Elizabeth that would have caused her to go into seclusion for the pregnancy? I've known some people that go into seclusion for pregnancy. It's usually because they're afraid. It's usually because they're maybe uncertain. Maybe they don't know what this means. Maybe they're afraid it's going to go wrong and they can't handle one more humiliation. I'm not saying that for sure, but there's some reason Elizabeth chose when she got pregnant to leave. You heard the word. It said when her relatives and her neighbors heard she gave birth, they rejoiced with her, right? I don't know if they even knew. I don't know. Mary knew because the angel had told her, but before that, she didn't know Elizabeth was pregnant. So we have this kind of uncertainty or this precaution or something that has caused Elizabeth to go into the wilderness for their pregnancy, to be isolated. But when her relatives and neighbors heard the Lord had shown her great mercy, they shared in her joy. And I think that's an awesome thing. So like that whole like, he's a boy idea, right? Or, he, or she's a girl. And, um, and all these things we get to celebrate. That's the right response, right? That, that they identified with her and rejoicing in God's grace. This is why we can be super excited when God is doing something in someone else's life, okay? Like, I just want to give you permission to be super excited when God is blessing somebody because that's what it looked like for Elizabeth. You know, it could have been, you know, there could have been a whole bunch of responses to this, but people just saw she was overjoyed with what God was doing. She can't believe it. And people, the word says, came beside her and celebrated with her. That's awesome. Praise God. You know and I know that humans aren't always like that. Sometimes we aren't like that. We start to grumble. Oh, why does Elizabeth get this? And I don't get that. And what's going on, right? But no, I want to give you full permission to rejoice. Praise God in what he's doing. I said, what could you, words could you use, family, to Christmas time? You hear good news? Say, that's awesome. Praise God. I'm so glad to hear it. I've been praying something awesome would happen. I've been praying that God would bless you because these are things that God has in his perfect timing for people, and we ought to rejoice. They shared in her joy. They, they identified and celebrated God's grace with her. I wonder, have you ever had somebody genuinely celebrate God's grace with you? Like come in your life and genuinely be excited for what God is doing? I hope you have. 
But even more so, I hope you will. I hope you will be the person. Be the person who will celebrate God's gift, God's joy. So on the eighth day, then we're going to move on here. On 59, on the eighth day, they came to the circumcised child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. We got to talk about that, by the way. Um, but his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. We're going to reverse. They said to her, there's no one amongst your relatives who has that name, right? So I'm wondering, by the way, first of all, let's talk about this. On the eighth day, they take him to be circumcised. And I started thinking, well, what's that mean? Why is eight days of circumcision? What's the deal with that? We're not going to get super off in the weeds on circumcision here. But you have to remember that circumcision was a covenant promise of God. That it was something that, was, that marked you as part of the community, that you belonged. And I thought, well, that's, but why eight days? What is it about eight days? Well, here's what I found, a couple of things. First of all, if you wait eight, eight days to circumcise a child, you've let them live through a full cycle of God's blessing. That would include the Sabbath. So no matter when the child is born, if you wait eight days, he's had or she's had a Sabbath experience. That means she's known God's creation, he's seen God's favor, and he has rested through a Sabbath, and he's now invited into the community, right? It's much like the story of Abram himself. This is his experience. He knew God's blessing before he was invited into God's presence. And so that's one thing that's interesting, is that, that, um, that he gets to experience a Sabbath rest, the second thing is this, interestingly enough. Eight days later, the parents had a chance to recuperate. I say parents, but mostly mom, right? I mean, God's intention is that everyone is there. This isn't like a male-only operation. And by the way, a fun fact tip. Tip, here, pro tip, for real. Guys in the room. If you're there when your child is born, it's your first child, stay with your wife. The baby's adorable. Love the baby. Don't leave, Don't leave the room with the baby and come back like hours later. That would be a bad thing. Ask me how I know. <laughs> right? Let my mistake be your blessing. Because in that moment, there's actually a sadness sometimes. And in that moment, it can be a lot to deal with for mom and dad. What's happening in our life? Well, this gives everyone a chance to kind of recover from the birth and be able to participate in this opportunity to celebrate. So eight days, mom's there, dad's there, everybody's excited. Praise God. We can move forward now and invite him into the community. Let's see what else. Oh, this was really interesting. Um, so there's another reason very specifically that, uh, that we have in Scripture, or not in Scripture, but in science. So there's a thing called vitamin K in our bodies. And vitamin K is depleted through the birthing process, but it gets its highest point at day seven and eight. So and what does vitamin K do? If anyone's here in the medical field, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I learned is it's about blood clotting. So it's actually the most opportune time to have a surgery would be on the eighth day of a child. If you're going to have one, it's a great chance to have one. Vitamin K, as a matter of fact, vitamin K is so important to infant development that, uh, that we inject it in babies now. We give them a shot, an intermuscular shot for vitamin K so that they can, because there were three chances for a baby to die. The first would be immediately on birth in the first few days. The second would be within the first week. And the late was called, that was in the first few months of life because of this same issue. So we have that um, really interesting grace. Now, did they know the science of eight days? No, but God knew. God knew the science of eight days. And so he calls people. Oh, that brings me to the last point. Why be circumcised on the eighth day? Because God said so. That's why. We don't have to understand. We just have to be obedient. He says, do that. We do that. And it's a blessing to his people. And so we have this reality. 
Eight days, he's circumcised. Okay, I just wanted to talk about that because that's interesting to me, kind of the ins and outs of circumcision on the eighth day. But the next thing I said I want to talk about is this. They were going to name his, him after his father John, or his father Zechariah. I'm thinking, who was going to name him? Isn't that the parents, right, to name a child? But it seems, and by the way, the baby was named at the eighth day. That's when the name was given to the child. And so it's like, well, the first seven days, and people are already saying this in our life, what, what are we calling the baby? We have to call it something. And so people started saying, baby Zechariah, baby Zechariah, Zechariah, bring Zechariah, we're going to have the circumcision. And Zechariah is standing there with not a word. And Elizabeth, God lover, says, no, he won't be Zechariah. He will be John. He will be called John. I'm, I think it's funny, all people are trying to name their kid. <laughs> and and Zechariah's like, no, 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 he's going to be called John. By the way, the word, the name John means Jehovah has shown favor, or Jehovah has shown grace. And Jehovah, you may have heard Jehovah's Witness, if they get this title from there their belief system, is actually the proper name of God. It's like a Yahweh, but it's a formal Yahweh. Jehovah. Jehovah is graceful to us. And so, so she's like, he's going to be named John. And they, they go, wait a minute, and there's no relative. I mean, if you're going to have this kid, and God's blessed you in this way, why wouldn't you be named God, the child what you want? Well, you know what? We don't know. We don't know why Elizabeth spoke up. Because we know what Zechariah knew. We got to read that. But we don't know what Elizabeth knew. But for some reason, either through revelation, through her conviction, or through her husband who had said he's going to be John, I don't know what, but she says, uh, no, his name is John. Look at this, though, 62. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. By the way, that's a great, that's a great moment, isn't it? We're going to name Zechariah, right? Mom's like, nope, John. Zechariah. What are we going to name this kid? What a great opportunity for uh, conflict, right? They go to Zechariah. I'm thinking it's out of respect, right? Now we're going to go to Zechariah and find out what we're going to name your child. He asked for the writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, I love this, his name is John. Mama's right. That's what he said. It's a wise man, John. But not only that, Gabriel had said, you're going to name him John. That's the name you're going to use for your child. I'm going to give you a kid, and this is what you're going to call him. And so he agrees with Elizabeth. So this is where John gets his name. Jehovah is graceful, is merciful. That's pretty cool. So we have this uh, uh, um, uh, circumcision, and we have Elizabeth and John being on the same page with what God is doing in their life. By the way, that's a really powerful thing. And in this moment, Zechariah could only witness it. I want to remind you again, this is the last time on this deal, but since he was in the temple serving at his high holy day, you know what it said when Elizabeth's time had come? Zechariah had been chosen to serve in the temple that day, and God said, I'm going to give you a son. And he said, how can this be? How can I know this is true? And he's like, well, now you're going to not be able to speak about it. And, and this is what I was thinking about. We have opportunities to proclaim Christ in Christmas season. We don't have to be a broken record or be lame about it, but we have an opportunity to say, like, praise God, I'm so excited, I'm praying for you. Will you pray for me? Or, you know, just, just, it's so ripe with opportunity. And I think it's part of our reason that we don't is because we think we can do it anytime. I want to do it now. But what if you're Zechariah, and you've been told you're going to have a child, and you go home, and you can't talk to your wife, and then she gets pregnant, and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant. And you're like, you know, because, yeah, but you can't say nothing. And you go through the whole pregnancy, Silent, by the way. Just think about that for a minute. You get to the end of the pregnancy. You've not said nothing. And I was thinking in my mind, when that baby's born, his lips are going to be unsealed. He's like, yes, he's here. I knew it. I knew it was going to happen. But no, 
he still can't speak. Baby's born, dog, you know, whatever they're doing, the midwife thing, or whatever they're doing there, and he can't say anything. He can only watch. I wonder what Zechariah's heart condition was as he watched God unfold this blessing in his life, and he couldn't say a word about it. I kind of have an image of him. He must be like a little teapot, right? He must be like a little, like, boiling, just... Or maybe he wasn't a talker. I don't know. No, I think he must have been, because it was a big deal that he was made mute, right? And so he takes his pad, which he must have gotten used to by now, and he scratches down, his name is John. He fulfills what he wasn't sure he could even know is fulfilled. And he says, not only is this baby born, not only is it my son that was promised, but his name is John. Four words. And at that, look at 64, immediately his mouth was opened. Listen, immediately his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. He began to praise God. I love that imagery of his mouth being set, um, opened and his tongue being set free. He had been bound, and not, again, in punishment, but I think in a, an opportunity for holy glory that in the right moment, at the right time, he could proclaim something great. And Zechariah began to praise God. Zechariah speaks. Immediately his mouth opens, his tongue's free, and he begins to eulgia. It's the same word about Mary being well spoken of. Now he's speaking well of God. He begins to profusely proclaim from the moment of his standing in the temple to the moment of him standing in the circumcision of his son, which, by the way, probably wasn't in the temple. Subnote, it was probably in a small setting, maybe in their home. But he got to begin to proclaim all the things that God had done, began to proclaim all the blessings that God had given. He began to speak highly of God, demonstrating God's favor. I wonder if, if God gave you a vision for your life and then um, constrained you to speak of it, even as you've seen it coming, what would your response be? I wonder, like, if God has said, someday I'm going to do this thing with you, and then you, you would, couldn't discuss it, maybe you didn't feel comfortable sharing or you didn't even believe it yourself or you weren't sure whatever happened, and you just waited on God, what would your state be when it was fulfilled? When the promise he made was kept? You know, like, what, what song would break out? What proclamation would come out of you? What, what condition would you be in in that time? Well, this is where Zechariah was. Maybe you have that in your life. Maybe there's something you've been waiting for God to do, and you're like, but he hasn't done it. Let me encourage you to wait and trust him. Just wait and trust him, because God keeps his promises. So Zechariah begins to speak. This freaks everybody out. It says his tongue was loosed. He began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were filled with awe. The word is fear. They were terrified. Phobos. They were afraid of what was happening. And throughout the hillside, the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. And now we're going to, have to come back here one more time to this idea. Throughout the hillside, they were talking about all these things, and the word is the way it actually reads. And it's that rhema again. I missed you three times now, but that word they were hung up on. And what, what I think that means is that God did what he said he could do. That God had kept this ridiculous promise with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Why would that cause fear in someone's life? Why would it cause people to be afraid when they would see? I, I can only think of one possible thing that would cause that kind of fear is that God is who he says he is. And that means that all the implications are true. That means all the things you've been reading in the Torah, all the things you've been taught from a child are actually enforced by a living God, not a passive God, not an absent God, but a God who's active in our life. 
And all of a sudden, it can become pretty fearful. You're like, ah, oh, I'm not sure I want to be near that kind of change. I'm not sure I want to be changed in that way, which is kind of crazy to think because what could be a greater blessing? But it filled them with awe or fear. They were stunned by what God had done with Elizabeth and with Zechariah. And, um, and, and then they were talking about the Ramah, that God had, that the, what God had promised, he fulfilled, that he had the ability to complete the things he says he'll complete. This became all the talk. I almost called it gossip, but it's probably not gossip. It's probably just like, did you hear what happened? Can you believe they have a son at their age? How is that possible? Maybe some of them were thinking, oh my God, I hope I don't get pregnant at this age. You get to some point, 99, you're probably thinking, maybe not. Maybe it's too late. Fear fell on all those living around them, and everyone was talking about the Rema, the power of God, and what he can do. Because God had done something that seemed impossible not so long ago. No way is that going to happen. And there it is, right? Check out this next verse, though. Verse 66. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Actually, the wondering there is the storing up. It says that they treasured, they stored up these things in their heart. I don't know what this means that God can do this. I don't know what this could mean for me that God can do this. And they treasured up. They stored up, actually laid up. Not treasured, not the same word there. They laid up in their hearts everything they had seen and heard. And they asked, what child will this be? God's doing something. He's clearly with this baby. Now we're going to turn then. This is very symmetrical, by the way. You must notice there's a pattern here. <coughs> Excuse me. Last week we had Mary with Elizabeth. And Mary answered. This time... We have Zechariah, and Zechariah prophesies. And so Zechariah is going to start to proclaim some things. Just like Mary did when God moved his life, or her life, Mary proclaimed some things about God. Well, Zechariah is going to proclaim some things as well. Look at verse 67. His father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. I just want to point out real quickly, that means that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. Remember the promise? He'll be filled with the Spirit from the time, uh, from, his, from his creation. He'll always be full of the Spirit. And then you remember that when Mary greeted Elizabeth, she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And now, after this period of silence and God filling his promise, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. It makes me wonder, and I'm serious in this, what could a family be if every person in it were filled with the Holy Spirit of God? You see, we talked about the Holy Spirit before, and we said, yeah, you know, uh, some of us are not sure about what that means and all that, but the question I think fundamentally is, do you want more of God in your life? Like, do you want more of God? And you're open to that. Yeah, I want more of God. But what if a child wanted more of God, and a mom wanted more of God, and a dad wanted more of God, and they were all seeking what God would have for them? Not in some kind of artificial man-made way, but in a real God-seeking way, where it was his spirit dwelling amongst them. Well, with this family, you have it. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, and John filled with the Holy Spirit since conception. This holy family on a holy mission, united by the Spirit of God. I think it's got to be powerful stuff. Listen, I want you to always dream, hope for what God can do through His Spirit. Always be open to what He's doing in your family, in, in your relationships. So Zechariah prophesies. We're read his prophecy. This is what he says. It comes in two parts. First part. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said so long ago through his holy prophets, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. 
to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So the first thing that Zechariah prophesies, he says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God for what he does. Very much the way Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The first response is back to God himself. God, you are awesome, and you're doing awesome things. I praise you for your awesome work. Zechariah is filled with the Spirit, and he begins to prophesy in that way. But he praises God for a few things particularly. He says, praise God. Why? Because he's come. He's come. At Christmas, we would often think that would mean, of course, Jesus. That's why we say Christmas, Jesus has come. But Zechariah in his own life has recognized God's presence now, here. Jesus, the God has come in some powerful way in his life. So praise God because he's visited us. He's come to us. Second thing he says is, praise God because he's performed redemption on his people. Performed redemption is a weird way to say that, right? But God has done something by his power that only he can do to redeem his people. That without the redemption, there was no hope and no value, no way forward. And so Zechariah says, praise God because he's performed redemption. He salvaged us in many ways from the scrap heap of history. Have you ever heard that, by the way, someone says, the wrong side of history? You know how you're on the wrong side of history? Just for real, real talk. If you're, if you're utterly worthless to God, if he, there's no value. I always think about redemption like in coupons. There's this little paper you get, you get in your newspapers, you clip them out. It's kind of annoying. You put them in a thing. You maybe, maybe you don't do that stuff. I don't know. But it has no value. You can literally light a fire with it until it's redeemed at the cash register. And when you redeem it, it has value. You'd be like, that's not worth anything, is it? Yes, it is. To the God who made us, there's power, there's redemption, there's value. And, and Zechariah, he says, praise God because he's redeemed us. He took us to the cash register. He cashed us in. He made us valuable. Praise God. Third thing he says is, he raised up a horn of salvation. The horn is a weird thing, but it's like the altar had horns on it. And it's like this kind of power. It's a recognition of power. And so salvation is coming. That's why he's excited. Salvation is coming. He's raised some hope that he's keeping his promises. That's the fourth thing. And the last thing he's praised God for, because he kept his promises. Or, what's the word say? He fulfilled his, um, his prophecies, what he promised through his prophets. Let me find it. Verse 70, as he said long ago through his holy prophets. So like this idea that God had been saying he's going to do these things, and he kept his promises through his prophets. What? He breaks it down now, four things. What's the promise through the prophets? Salvation from our enemies. The enemy, the enemy will not triumph. We will be saved. The enemy, though, he mocks and ridicules and, and, and you know, rides us. He won't win. He can't win because God keeps his promise. Salvation from our enemies. He rescued us from the hand of all who hate us. There are people who are pursuing, um, who pursue us and who want ill for us, and he redeems us from their hand. He showed mercy to our ancestors, right? Let's see. Yeah, to show mercy to our fathers. That's amazing. And to remember his holy covenant, the promise that he made to his people, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. There it is again. So not just me being rescued from my enemy, but us being rescued from our enemies, that God has done this work, and, and, and Zechariah says, and praise his name for it. Praise God for the way he does it. And then he, he, two more things here. He enables us to serve him without fear. 
Zach, Zechariah seemed to serve pretty well before, but something's gone, and it's being afraid of what God might or might not do. He's like, he enables us to serve without fear now. I can just go and do that thing. I can risk it. I can try it. Listen to me. I can even fail. You know why? Because God's got it. If it doesn't go like I planned, praise God. He's got this. But I can try. I can learn and grow. I can serve without fear. And listen, in 75, and we can serve, or Zechariah says, I can serve, we can serve in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So Zechariah is like, man, I was in the holy of holies doing that thing, but the rest of my life I get to spend before the Lord, like just believing that he's doing great things, he's fulfilled promises. And Zechariah gets to live this, listen, beautiful life in the Lord. He is worthy. He saves us. And he's, we get to live in holiness and righteousness all of our days. What an awesome thing. What an awesome promise from God fulfilled. That's the first part of his prophecy. Here's the second part. My child. So he begins to speak over John. And to you, my child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. You remember that? You'll be overshadowed by the Most High, right? Abram, he offered a sacrifice to the Most High. And so you have this continuation or culmination of promises. You're going to be a prophet of the Most High, he says, over his son. Because you will go before the Lord, and you will prepare a way before him. So you're going to go ahead, and you're going to prepare, right? And later on, if you read the scripture, you know this is what we see John doing. His whole life's calling is get ready for Jesus. He doesn't say Jesus. He says Messiah. Get ready for the Messiah. Get ready. What's he going to proclaim here? Look, 77. You're going to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. John gets to be, be proclaim that God is bringing a permanent solution to the sin problem. I want to remind you that Jesus was born into a Jewish household, and so was John. And Zechariah was a priest. And, and he's born into the system where they sacrifice and all these things. But you're going to be a prophet of the Most High, and you're going to proclaim salvation of, from sins to the people of God. God's making a way. Are you tired of the animals? Are you tired of the going every time and doing it again, hoping it's enough? Well, there's a time coming when God's going to make everything right. And that's what he gets to proclaim to teach people the knowledge of salvation, of the forgiveness of sins. You know, I think about this in our lives today, and I wonder, is that something we still have to teach actively? Do you know that God forgives you? Do you know you can be forgiven? I was talking to a friend of mine, and sometimes we're so afraid to even confess wrongdoing because we think it's not forgivable. Who's going to forgive us these things we've done? But we can say, God does. God did. God will forgive you. That's why Jesus came. And John's the first one who gets to proclaim this message of salvation, of the forgiveness of sins. 78, he gets to do it because of the tender mercy of God. It's not a new thing. It's who God is. He loves to restore his people. He loves to forgive his people. He loves to redeem his people. And he has tender mercy for his people. This is the next thing it says. The, the, he, he gets to um, proclaim the rising sun, which will come to us from heaven. And this is an interesting analogy because it's not the rising sun, S-O-N. You would think maybe that would work. It's the S-U-N, sun. I always thought it was funny when we, when we called, there's a song we sang about um, the, um, the sun, and it's S-U-N. I always think, that's a typo, right? It should be S-O-N. But no, because it's going to bring light 
in. Look at what it says in 70. The rising sun that comes from heaven will shine light to those living in darkness. That's the sun's job, to light dark corners, to expose dark areas of our life. And the second thing it says the sun does is this. It, it comes to shine on those who are in the shadow of death. You know, we have that psalm that says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But you know a great moment in a valley when the sun's right overhead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you live in a valley, I was just reading the story about somebody who lives in a valley and they get 30 minutes of sunlight a day because no matter what side of the valley, you're always in the shade. But for 30 minutes, you're right under the sun. And you get to be reminded again. All the darkness goes away. There's no more shadow, no more mystery, no more fear. But God reveals everything. So John gets to proclaim this, a light in the darkness, a light breaking forth, a rising sun, bringing about shadows, even those who are walking in the shadow of death. And then here's the last thing. God, John gets to proclaim a guide or, to guide our feet into the path of peace. That this is the one coming. He's come to bring you into the war. He's come to bring the end to the struggle and into the fight and in a promise fulfilled in the hope. Not an end to the hope, but the fulfillment of the hope. And so this is Zechariah's second part of his prophecy to his son. You're going to do all these things because of God's favor. This is great. By the way, can we just, and you know, the, the, John's a baby, right? But do you, what is the power of a father to speak truth over his children? Uh, rightly discerning it, filled with the Holy Spirit to say powerful, true things about what God is doing. I, I, I can't imagine this is the last time John is being told by his father and his mother, God has ordained you for something, right? Like, that's powerful stuff that we see demonstrated here, and it's God's grace to the family. It's, it's almost dangerous though, right? Because you've got to be careful. Say the things that God says. So he proclaims all these things about John, and then the last verse here, verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in the spirit. And this tripped me out. And he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Did you hear that last part? You know, we know John, camel hair, eating locusts, out in the wild, eating, you know, tasting honey, uh, proclaiming, make straight the path of the Lord, right? But the word says right there, he grew in the spirit from that time, right? So he's raised in the spirit of God. And he dwelt in the desert. The word desert is the word wilderness. I wondered, why did Elizabeth kind of seek, why did she go away when she's pregnant with John? But isn't it interesting that John's whole life was away? I asked the question we started, what would it be like? I want us to imagine just for a minute. What would it be like to be preparing your whole life for a moment and just waiting to be called? Waiting. Waiting till God, like, what's God going to do? When's he going to pull a trigger? When are we going to go? What's going to happen? Because the way I read the narrative of John's birth here is it doesn't just say, it doesn't say, well, the baby's born, and then these things happen. That's really cool stuff. But it says, then he grew in the spirit, and he dwelt in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. That means he's a man in the wings, being equipped, prepared, ready, radical, unaffected, wasn't bending down. Remember what he said to the teachers? He's like, you brood of vipers, who called you to repentance? You know, like he's been out there getting ready for God. God's going to do a great big thing. But when the time came, when the curtain lifts, when the public ministry begins, John is shot out into the world, a great herald of the truth of the Messiah revealed. You'll remember they were both 
born. We're going to talk about Jesus' birth next week. They're both born, but not revealed to the world yet. So John's waiting for his Christmas proclamation. I don't mean Christmas baby. I mean Christmas Jesus, right? Proclaiming the coming Messiah, the one who is to come. What a blessing. Um, I, I think as we kind of turn into communion, I want to ask the question, and I mean this for every person in the room, but do you know we have salvation through the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ? Like part of what we celebrate in communion is a recognition, a remembrance of the forgiveness of sins that we have, that we ought not to be afraid, that we ought to be um, willing to, to be open to what God's doing in our life and waiting for him, but also speaking when the moments come. To be open to being used by God for his glory, for our good, in acts of obedience. Do you know that our forgiveness of our sins comes that way? Do you know that Jesus came to set us free, like Zechariah's mouth and Zechariah's tongue, to be free to express ourselves? Like I said, to try and fail and try again, because we know that one is with us who's redeeming everything, all the work. I hope you know that today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to ask God to bring the elements out, and we'll pass those around this morning. But if you don't know that, I want to encourage you to consider that at the table this morning. Consider as we share communion together. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning for the great witness we have from John. <coughs> the, the, the recognition of his birth being the first um, in the Christmas story of your great love for your people and of you doing impossible things. And maybe there's folks here today, and I almost guarantee you there's people here today amongst us, brothers and sisters, who've been waiting for some redemption, waiting for some Christmas hope, um, waiting for some culmination of <laughs> to trust you uh, in the hard times. <coughs> I pray, Father, that um, as we come to this Christmas season, that we would sense your path of peace, that we would sense the forgiveness of our sins, and that, Father, honestly, that we could be soft-hearted toward those who maybe we have the hardest time with, that you would be working in our families and amongst our families to draw your people together in a great and glorious Christmas story. Uh, Father, I pray upon all who are believing here today that we would be the first to acknowledge Christ, that we'd be the first to praise his name, that we'd be the first to celebrate what you're doing in someone else's life. And Father, can I pray so boldly as ask that we'd be the last one to doubt what you could do, that we'd be the last one to think something's impossible. Fill us with hope this Christmas season. Fill us with your plans and your path and cause us to be obedient to you. Invite us into obedience and let it compel us to act. We love you so much and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.